Romans chapter 7. If you'll take your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 7. We're going to start a new chapter in the book of Romans. We've been studying through Romans the last several months, and uh, we'll be in it for, for probably a year and a half total uh, as we just go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Romans. Probably for the Christian, all the scriptures are, are for us, but listen, the book of Romans lays out really the, the doctrinal stance of our salvation. The first three chapters, the, the main topic of chapters 1, 2, and 3 in the book of Romans was sin and how we're all guilty. The Jew is guilty, the Gentile is guilty, the whole world is guilty before God because of their sin. And I appreciate you hanging with me because the first three chapters were kind of rough. You know, they were, they were just painting the picture of our depravity and our sin before God. And then God shifts gears around chapter 3 about halfway through. And chapters 3, 4, and 5 deal with salvation and the righteousness that God makes available to us through Jesus Christ. And, uh, and we study those chapters in detail. And then we, we're entering into the, kind of the third main section of Romans, chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8. And these chapters really deal with our sanctification. In other words, for a Christian to live victoriously, I believe Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, and Romans chapter 8 are, are, are probably the three most important chapters for us to understand how to live victoriously over our flesh and over the law through the power of the Spirit of God in our life. Really, God put these chapters in here for every Christian to live victoriously. And so uh, today we start chapter 7, and uh, when, we, when we studied chapter 6, we learned that we have victory over the flesh through Jesus Christ. In chapter 7, we're going to learn that we have victory over the Old Testament law. And, and, and the main topic of chapter 7 is our standing in Christ as it relates to the law, to the Old Testament law. And so uh, let me read chapter 7, verse 1 to 6. And if, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, we got a lot of verses on the screen for you. So hopefully you can see that. Just feel free to follow along. Let me read the verse, verses, uh, chap, uh, verses 1 to 6. I'll pray, and then, uh, and then we'll get into the text, all right? Romans chapter 7, verse 1. The Bible says, Know ye not, brethren... For I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law. So that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead, uh, dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we, we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. All right, so we're going to tackle this thing this morning of being loosened from the law. Let's pray together and ask God to help us. Father, we love you. We need you. And uh, Lord, I thank you for, for everything up to this point in the service, God, we've experienced. Thank you for the fellowship. Thank you for the praise and worship. Thank you for the offering. Thank you for the mission minute. God, we're blessed people. And, uh, and, and truly, we... Uh, can stop and just say thank you, Lord. Thank you for all that you do for us and all you've already done for us this morning. And as we, as we stand now ready to receive your word, 
Uh, Lord, may, may it have free course among us. May we have ears to hear uh, what your spirit would have to say to this church. And God, as we study and as we rightly divide and, and as we compare Scripture with Scripture, may your Holy Spirit teach us uh, as only he can. God, give us the victory that we stand in need of today. And we'll give you all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning the message is entitled, Loosed from the Law. And, and what Paul is going to do, what God is going to do through the Apostle Paul is, is define for us and use an illustration for us of how we are now free, we are dead, we are loosened from the Old Testament law, the Old Testament standard. And so your first point in your notes this morning is we're going to study our loosening from the law, our loosening from the, from the law. And I want you to look back at verse 1 with me in your Bible. Romans chapter 7, verse 1, it says this, Know ye not, brethren, and here's what Paul says, For I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. And, and, and so listen, we know that Paul wrote this epistle to all the saints in Rome. Romans chapter 1 tells us that Paul wrote this epistle. God, God inspired Paul, he had a penman named Tertius, but, but God, was the, or God used Paul as the human instrument to deliver his words. And verse 7 says, he's delivering these words to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. He's writing to all believers in Rome. But in chapter 7, he does identify and address a specific group of believers that would have been at Rome, he says, them that know the law. In other words, at Rome, amongst those that have been saved and responded to the gospel, there would have been people that were saved, but they were Gentiles. In other words, they were, they were pagan. They weren't part of the Jewish culture, the Jewish re religion. They did not have the understanding or access to the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament law, Moses's writings, however you want to however you want to frame it, there were Gentile believers in Rome that didn't have any spiritual background. In other words, you know, Romans chapter 2 tells us that the Gentiles, they did not have the law. It tells us that, right? And God differentiates those groups of people. It is important that we differentiate people the way God differentiates people. So when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which shew the work of the law written in their what? Look, there were Gentiles that were not Jewish by, by nature or by bloodline or by religion. They didn't have the Old Testament scriptures. Yet God said that they had a law that was written not on papyrus or not in stone, but it was written where? In their, it was in their heart. And they had a conscience that bared witness that, that they were guilty before God. That's what Romans 2 talks about. But there were some people in Rome that did have access to the Scriptures. They did have access to the law. These would have been Jewish believers that, that got saved by receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or these would have been Jewish proselytes. In other words, Gentiles that had adopted the Jewish religion. Romans chapter 9, verses 3 to 4 tell us that the law was given to the nation of Israel. Romans 9 and verse 3, Paul says, For I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, listen to this, for my brethren. Paul was a Jew. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Culturally, genealogically, 
He can identify with the nation of Israel. He says, my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the what? Flesh, who are, in case you still don't know who he's talking about, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants. By the way, the church does not get Israel's covenants because they pertain to Israel and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. And I just want you to see that in Romans 9, God tells us there were people that had access to the law, to, to Moses' writings, to the first five books, the Torah, however you want to look at it. They had, they had had access to that. Now they've received the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to tell us in Romans chapter 7, here is your relationship to that law now that you're in Christ. Does, that, does, does all that set up help you a little bit? That's the context of Romans chapter 7. And so, and so Paul is going to use an illustration, and he's going to pull from the Old Testament law to people who are familiar with the law to make the illustration. And, and I'm really spending, point one will be the longest point this morning because it sets up everything else in, in the, the remainder of the verses. Okay, so look at verse 2 in your Bible. Here's the illustration. Okay, so he's speaking to those that, that have the law, that are familiar with the law. He says in verse 2, For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is freed from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Okay, so what is Paul doing here in these verses? Well, let me tell you what Romans 7, verses 1 to 6 is not. Let's start with what it's not. And I didn't put all this stuff on the, on the board, but I want you to just listen to me. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6 is not the all-inclusive, definitive teaching on marriage and divorce. As some people would say it is. It absolutely is not. And there is a common teaching in Christianity that if you are divorced, you can't get married again until your ex dies. And if you do, you are living in sin or committing some kind of perpetual adultery. Well, that is not what the Bible is teaching in Romans chapter 7. And there are plenty of other scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which are the definitive texts on marriage and remarriage. And, and, and so I just want you to understand, listen... When you teach wrongly out of Romans chapter 7 concerning marriage and divorce, you create bondage in a person that is hoping and praying that their ex-spouse dies so they can move on. It would be better off if they just committed murder. Don't do that. Because God can forgive murder, right? Sadly, in our culture of Christianity, we don't think God can forgive divorce. Hello? We think that's the unpardonable sin. And there's a lot of people that have been hurt in a lot of churches over that issue. And it comes from bad teaching and bad doctrine. As a matter of fact, there are three biblical allowances for divorce. And, and the more, this morning, the, the topic is not divorce, but the Bible is not silent on this. Divorce is allowed if a spouse dies, if a spouse deserts, in other words, departs, or if a spouse is called in fornication, and there's plenty of passages for that. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 32, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, half the chapter. 
And so I want to say this before we get into the actual teaching of Romans 7. Number one, if you've been on the receiving end of bad teaching about divorce and remarriage, and you've been the recipient of being in bondage because of legalistic wrong teaching, then I pray that God gives you healing today. That's my prayer. If you understand what the Bible says about marriage and divorce and remarriage, and yet you find yourself having not followed the biblical prescription for that, and that hangs in the back of your walk with the Lord like a, like a thing that just won't go away, and you think that that's some unpardonable sin, or you think that that's something that God can never recover you from, I want to encourage you that you can commit your life and the marriage that you have to Him today. And you can stop worrying about what other people say about you, and you can make your marriage count for God's kingdom and for eternity beginning today. I want to encourage you with that. You don't have to live defeated. You don't have to live in bondage. You can live victoriously because God is a God that forgives and restores. Romans 7 is not teaching on divorce. It is teaching about adultery. If one is not loosened from a spouse due to death, and the point is not actual physical marriage, the point is our relationship with the law now that we are in Christ. That is the definitive teaching of Romans chapter 7. It is an illustration or an analogy of how our relationship to the law now that we are in Christ. And so here it is in your notes. Look, Romans 7 is an illustration using the Old Testament law of marriage to make the point of this reality of our relationship that we now have in Christ. That is the point. And listen, I've been a part of some wonderful churches. I'm thankful for that. And I've seen wonderful things in ministry, but I've also seen some pretty damaging things in ministry because of a wrong teaching concerning this issue. That somehow, because someone has experienced that, God has put them on a shelf forever and God can't use them any longer. And friend, that's not biblical. That is absolutely not biblical doctrine. And so let's get to what is biblical. This illustration of marriage and the reality of our relationship with Christ. So listen, according to the law, a woman was bound to her husband as long as he liveth. Now if she's already married and then she marries another, the Bible says that she is an adulteress and that is pulled out of the Old Testament law. Well listen, God is using that illustration to teach us about us and our relationship with Christ. You see, because the husband, in that illustration, the husband is your old nature. It's your flesh. It's your old nature. And the woman, in that illustration, the wife, is our spiritual nature. And because you have a soul, and you have a, a, an eternal soul, but you also have a flesh nature, a sinful nature, under the law, the Bible teaches that a man and a wife are bound together. And, and you can't step outside of that marriage. And, and as a lost person, please understand that your flesh, your old nature, and your soul are bound together under the law and your lostness. As a matter of fact, if you're lost, you're, you're married to your flesh. You're one flesh with your old nature as a lost person. And the Bible says that you are under the law. Oh, and by the way, if you try to live the law to be righteous in God's eye, you had better live all of it. James chapter 2, verses 10 to 11 says this, For, for whosoever shall keep the whole law, 
and yet offend in how many points? One point. He's guilty of all. You know, that's a great way to witness to people. How good of a person are you? I'm a pretty good person. Have you ever told a lie? Well, just white lies, just little lies. Okay, well, if you've told a lie, then you're guilty of everything in the Old Testament that the law says. I mean, we're not supposed to lie, we're not supposed to steal, we're not supposed to kill. Even if you've told one lie, if you've offended in one point, the Bible says you're guilty of all of it. Well, I'm a good person. Not according to God's standard, you're not. Not according to God's standard, you're not. For he that saith, do not commit adultery, also saith also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no more adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14 says this, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the what? The curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by what? Not by the law, but by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed be everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Listen, if you are under the law, if you're married to the law, if your lost soul is married to your, uh, to your lost old man, your flesh nature, you are under legal obligation to the law. And the only way out of that marriage is a death. That's what Paul is illustrating through this illustration, through this analogy. There has to be a death And listen, Jesus Christ died on the cross. The Bible says that he became cursed. He hung on the tree for our sin. His death is what makes our death a possibility so that we can be loosened from the law and the legal requirements. As a matter of fact, in Christ, and when you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith, you're no longer in the flesh. The Bible says you are now in Christ But when you put your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you called on him to save you from your sin. There was a death that took place. And the death was your old nature. It was your old flesh. It it was crucified on the cross of Calvary with Jesus Christ. And so what you were married to, your old nature and your flesh that was under the law, listen, Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. I'm dead. I'm dead. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ that liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So listen, because there was a death, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, there was a death that loosened you legally, from that bondage that you were bound to, your old man, your old nature, your flesh, God loosened you so that you could be married to another. And the one that you were to be married to is Christ. And God says, now you can do that, and you can do it without it being called adultery, because there's been a death. Does that make sense? I know this is a little deep this morning, but this is part of our salvation. 
This is, this is part of our legal standing in Christ because you experienced a death. Your sinful nature, your old man was crucified on the cross. Listen, you were crucified with Christ. The Bible says you were loosened to be remarried to another. And the other is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 10 and verse 4, the Bible says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. I'm telling you, man, this is a powerful truth. And so make sure you understand what God is trying to communicate in Romans chapter 7, that that before we were saved, and especially those that knew the law, they would have understood that, man, legally binding... I'm bound to this thing. I'm bound to the law. I'm bound to this husband. And yet, because there's been a death, now I'm free. And I'm free to be remarried. And I can remarry Christ. And that's part of our salvation experience. And so number two, we need to talk about our marriage to Christ. Our marriage to Christ. Because the Bible teaches that that all of us, listen, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we were loosened from the law so that we could be married to another, married to the person of Jesus Christ. Look at back at verse 4, Romans 7 and verse 4. If you doubt everything I just told you, that Romans 7 is not the definitive teaching on divorce, verse 4 should clear it up. Because the very first word is, wherefore. In other words, Paul says, I've said everything I've just said, so I can say this. And here it is. Wherefore, my brethren... Ye also are become dead to the what? To the law. How did you become dead to the law? By the body of who? By the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Man, what a wonderful promise. And so here it is. The word wherefore is the key to this whole passage in verses 1 to 6. Wherefore, God says, I've said all this to say this. Here's the point. The point is we can be married to Christ, number one, because we are loosed from the law. In Christ, we are loosened from the law. You died to it. You were crucified with Christ. Your old nature has been crucified. We studied that in Romans chapter 6. Number two, we can be married to Christ because we are dead to the law. A dead man doesn't have to obey the law. Now listen, you would say, well, Jay, man, there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that carry over. Listen, listen, there's a moral law that carries over from the Old Testament to the New Testament that's, that's verified in both. There certainly are things that God has echoed to continue because his stance has not changed. But if anybody's wearing a blend of cotton and polyester today, you don't have to be in fear of judgment because it was forbidden in the Old Testament. Hello? If anybody's with a 50-50 shirt on, you can breathe a little easier because you're dead to the law. Hello? Everybody's checking their tag. Check my tag. Can you? <laughs> I need to know if I'm going to be condemned this morning. We'll judge you literally based on what you wear. Is that 50-50? <laughs> that 50-50 blend? Man, you're dead to the law. You're dead to the law. The Bible says in verse 6 that we have been delivered from the law. That's why we can be married now to Christ. And because we are identified with Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection, 
We are now married to Him. We are now part of a body that should be married to another. And the another, well, is Jesus Christ Himself. That's who He is. And that's, that's a wonderful truth. And so, and so let me give you a few references that echo that point. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says this, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. Why? For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to whom? He's writing to these believers at Corinth and he says, man, listen, I, I, I played matchmaker. I came into Corinth. I preached the gospel. You received the gospel. I was able to, to espouse you, to engage you to be married to Jesus Christ. That, that's what Paul is saying. And, and listen, we, we would use that word espoused. In our, in our culture, in our day, we may even use the word, well, you know, these guys are engaged and the, the marriage certainly is in the future. Uh, and that is our standing in Christ. The Bible says that we are, we are espoused to one husband and that marriage ceremony, we'll find it in Revelation in just a second. I do want you to understand that God views, as, God views espousal the same way he views marriage. So just pay attention to the words, Matthew 1, verses 18 and 19. Many of you know the story, talking about the birth of Jesus Christ. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When is his mother, Mary, was a spouse to whom? They were engaged, right? Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. They were a spouse, but they were not yet formally married. The ceremony had not taken place. They had not come together. And yet in verse 19, the Bible says that Joseph is her, not fiance, her husband. God views a spousal legally binding just like he does marriage. And you're espoused to Christ. And listen, that marriage ceremony hasn't happened yet. We're going we're gonna to experience that in Revelation chapter 21. But God views your espousal to him with as much weight as he does your marriage to him. Ephesians chapter 5, you know, the greatest chapter. We, we would say Ephesians 5 is the greatest chapter on marriage, and it is. But Ephesians 5 is the greatest chapter on Christ and his church as it relates to a husband and a wife because our marriages really are to picture Christ and the church. And maybe you're a guy here today and you say, man, that's really weird because... We're talking about being married to Jesus Christ, and I'm a dude, and that's, that's kind of weird. Okay, well, well, you are a guy, and in your marriage, you are to picture the Lord Jesus Christ, and your wife is to picture the church, but we're also all part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. We're all part of the church, and we are the ones that will be married to Him. And so, men, you especially have it hard because you're to be an example of Christ, but you're also a bride, you got both on your plate. You need to learn to be a good bride, men. You need to learn to be a good bride. So Ephesians 5, look at verse 30. The Bible says, For we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and, they shall be joined unto, uh, and he shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be called one flesh. This is a great mystery, Paul says, man, you think I'm talking about your marriages. No, 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 no. 
This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. You see, your relationship with Christ is literally that of a marriage. It's a husband and a wife. It's a, it's a, it's a bride and a bridegroom. We are members of his flesh. You are not members of your old nature and your old flesh any longer. You're members of his flesh and his bone and his body. Paul yanked that right out of Genesis chapter, 20, or Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 and 24 with Adam and Eve, right? One of the greatest types of Christ in the church in the Old Testament. The Bible says, The rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and he brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife. And they shall be one flesh. And let me just say this. Our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, desires to cleave to his wife. The question is, does his wife desire to cleave to him? You know, that, that marriage is going to become a reality for those of us that know Christ. Revelation 21, verse 2, the Bible says, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And most of us that are married, man, you remember that day when you got married. You remember those doors opening, and you remember seeing that, that woman that was going to be yours coming down the aisle, and, uh, and, and she was adorned and, and prepared to meet her husband and, and to become one flesh in God's eyes. And, and, and that whole ceremony was planned and prepared, and that whole ceremony is really a presentation of the gospel and of Christ and his church. And that's why we do it the way we do it, because it ain't even about us. It is about us, but it's about him. And ultimately, that's going to take place. Revelation 21 and verse 9. There came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. And he talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. He is extremely jealous over his wife his bride. We have one husband. There's one wife. They are to be one flesh and one body. That's who we're called to be in our standing in Christ. And because we've been loosened from the law, we can be married to another. Well, let me give you the practical point, and that's the last point right here, the fruit of our marriage. Pick it back up in verse 4, the fruit of our marriage. Because all the truths that we learned ultimately culminate in this point. Verse 4 says this. We could be married to another that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto what? Unto death. But now we are delivered from the law that being dead, wherein we were held that we should serve in the newness, excuse me, in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of of the letter. The natural result of a marriage is fruit. It's fruit. It's offspring. It's children. It's reproduction. That's what it is. And the Bible tells us that when we were married to our flesh, in other words, he, he's, he uses the phrase, listen, verse 5, when we were in the flesh, well, here's the fruit of our life. 
the law worked in our members and it brought forth fruit unto what? Unto death. When we were married to our flesh, our fruit was death. There was nothing that could please God. There was nothing that could bring honor and glory to God. It always results in death. And when we were in the flesh, that was our standing before we were in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11 says this, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past, Gentiles in the, in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the what? Who were the uncircumcision in the flesh? Who were they? They were Gentiles. Who was the circumcision in the flesh? The Jews. And listen, God says, listen, in your flesh... Jew or Gentile, you didn't bring about any fruit that profited you. It didn't bring honor and glory to Christ. It, it didn't please God. It always results in death. That's why in Galatians, the Bible teaches us that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Because once you're in Christ, you're no longer in the, in the flesh. You guys are learning this morning. Praise the Lord. And, and so listen, when we were in our flesh, there's no fruit. No fruit. The fruit was death. It was death. If you were Jewish and you were religious and you were still in the flesh, it resulted in death. If you were a Gentile and you were a pagan and you didn't have the law, the result of that was, was death. But then he says in verse 6, but now, but now, but now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness, in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And so the Bible says, but now we should serve in the newness of spirit. I'm just going to say a few things. Listen, a life married to Christ should result in serving. Hello? A life now married to Christ should result in serving. You know, when you get married, everything changes. I mean, you know this, everything changes. And you have to learn, man, you, however long you were single or, or whatever, and now you're married and you, and you have to learn to, to live under the same roof with this other person. And let me just tell you, one of the keys to, to a successful marriage is for you as a spouse learning to serve your spouse. This is free marriage counseling. You don't even have to pay $290 to drive to Pigeon Forge for this. Married in Christ should result in serving if your marriage is to picture Christ in the church, then you should learn to serve one another. And you should learn to serve in a body of believers. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, So then they that are in the flesh, they cannot please God. If you're lost, if you're still in your flesh, God wants you to get saved. Because, because without faith, you can't please God. In the flesh, you can't please God. But, but you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit if so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And so listen, in the context of marriage, fruit, well, it, it comes naturally. It should come naturally in marriage, and it's the result of intimacy. It is the result of intimacy. In other words, listen, it is, a, it is the result of a loving relationship between a husband and a wife. It is children that are brought into the family. It is spiritual reproduction that should be happening in our lives. Because of our marriage to Christ, we should be bringing forth fruit. If we are truly married to Christ, God's, God says we should serve in newness of spirit 
And the result of that should be evidenced by, by fruit. You say, what does that look like? Well, Galatians 5 gives us a little bit of information. We, we should have the fruit of the Spirit evidenced in our life. And, and notice that the, the verse in Galatians 5 says that this is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits, plural, of the Spirit. One fruit with nine characteristics. The Bible says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no, no what? Oh, no law. The very thing that we've been loosed from. So Galatians 5 ought to be a reality in every believer's life that is married to Christ. That was a good spot for an amen. You missed it. That's okay. There, there's more opportunities for you. God also tells us in John 15 that God is glorified when we bear much fruit. John 15 and verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so shall you be my disciples. You see, we, we are a pro-discipleship church. We believe in discipleship at this church, and we teach discipleship, and we try to make disciples at this church. But let me just make a statement here that's really important. Discipleship is not you completing a series of lessons and getting a check by your name. Discipleship is not you going through a Bible study with another believer and no transformation happening in your life. As a matter of fact, true discipleship has not really happened in your life until you are bearing much fruit. Then and only then do you truly become a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's actually the marker of a disciple of Christ. So, so be careful young believers that are going through discipleship thinking that, oh boy, I, I went through the process and I got my name checked off that I've been through 16 lessons or 18 lessons or I've taken somebody else through 18 lessons. No, listen, God is glorified when we bear much fruit and only when we bear much fruit. And God is really interested in fruit that remains. John 15 and verse 16 says this, Jesus says, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. God looks for fruit that remains. In Hebrews 13 and verse 15, God looks for the fruit of our lips. Verse 15 says this, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God. What's the next word? Listen, I'm thankful for our 15 to 20 minutes of worship and, and praise that we do on Sunday morning. If that's the only time that you offer the sacrifice of praise to your God, you're missing opportunity. And he, he defines it. He says that sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Well, I don't want to sing because I don't like the songs. I don't, I don't want to sing because I don't like the, the music. I don't like the loudness. Okay, listen, look, whatever. Okay. When you are intimate with the Lord Jesus Christ, his words become your words. The fruit of your lips is a result of the intimacy that you've already had with him. Oh, or, or by the way, the intimacy that you have not had with him. You see, you see when our lips offer, don't offer the sacrifice of praise continually, and we don't offer the giving of thanks to his name 
continually. Many times it isn't because the music's not right, the worship leader's not right, the songs aren't right, the lighting's not right. It's not any of those things. There's a lack of intimacy in your life, and you don't have anything to say because you haven't spent time with him. You forgot that you were married to him. And you forgot that his words are given to you so that you could be intimate with him. And it doesn't take long in a church to figure out who really has been intimate with the Lord and who is not. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And when we don't talk about our husband, when we don't talk about his word, when we don't talk about the things that we're learning in God's word and how he's answering prayer and how his presence is ever with us and how he's not forsaken us and how he's provided for us, when we don't express any of those things, but we've just proven that we really just don't spend time with him. And then we show up in church and sit lock-jawed and critical. You know, I think, of, I think of Hannah in the Old Testament. Hannah, Hannah was a woman that desired fruit. The Bible says that the Lord had shut up her womb, but she desired fruit. And so she, she was a woman who knew how to worship God. The Bible tells us that she wanted fruit so much that she went to the house of the Lord. And the Bible says that she prayed to the Lord and she wanted a son. And the Bible tells us that she prayed so fervently and, and, and so vehemently that the, the priest, Eli, was watching her pray. And as she's praying, Eli, like a good Baptist, was critical and said, that woman's got to be drunk. <laughs> and she said, no, actually, I'm not drunk. I'm pouring out my soul to the Lord because I want fruit. Now, listen, there are Christians that really desire that. Now, there are some that are just critical because they don't have any, any intimacy with Christ. They're religious and they're dangerous. But there are some Christians that really, truly desire fruit in their life. And they're a lot like Hannah. Listen, they show up in the house of the, of the Lord. They show up in the house of the Lord. They pray for fruit. And they know that God's word says that if we pray according to his will, he will hear us. And, and we even know that. But you know what was missing in Hannah's life? She did everything right. She went to the house of the Lord. She prayed for fruit. God heard her prayer. God confirmed her prayer. Eli said, God grant you the desire of your petition. Well, in order to have fruit, there was one more thing that she had to do. She had to go be intimate with her husband. And I'm just telling you, church, most Christians are fruitless not because they don't go to church, not because they don't pray for fruit, not because God hadn't promised to give them fruit because we just read four verses that actually prove that God wants you to have a fruitful life for his glory. Most Christians are fruitless because there's no intimacy with whom they are married to. Sometimes that's because they don't know how to be intimate and they need to be discipled and they need to learn and they need to grow. But you know what? Sometimes it's because they're still committing spiritual adultery. Married to one, but forsaking that marriage and that intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ for another.
James chapter 4 and verse 4 says this, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And listen, church, you need to listen very carefully. In most marriages, in most physical marriages, infidelity begins with a seemingly innocent friendship. It starts with an emotional affair that later becomes a physical affair. And Christian, if you want to make friends with this world when you're married to another, that's a dangerous step in the wrong direction. And that will lead to spiritual adultery, and that will lead to a lack of intimacy because the truth is, instead of serving God and pleasing God and being intimate with God, we'll chase the world and the things that are in the world and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life will become the focus of our life, and we'll still come to church, and maybe we'll pray, and maybe we'll even sing a song, and after 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years of that, there's still no fruit in our life. We have to ask why. And the why is because God says we need to be intimate with Him. Church, listen, we've been loosened from the law. We've been loosened so that we can be completely married to the other. If the end of your lostness and your, and your sin was death, if the end result of everything that was in your life and that was a part of your old nature and your flesh and your sinful nature, if the end of all those things is death, and then you've been freed from that, and now you can be married to Christ. Why would you ever want to go back there? Because the end result's still the same. So listen. God's interested in cleaving to his bride. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the perfect husband. Now, all of us husbands in the room, man, listen, we, we need to pray diligently that we be the Christ-like men of God that we need to be in our home. We need to humble ourselves. We need to serve our family. We need, to, we need to be like Christ through the power of God's Word and the power of God's Spirit. Ladies, when, I, when, when, when we as husbands fail, please understand that there is a true husband that does not. He does not. And his name is Jesus. And the intimacy that we can experience with him and have with him will always result and fruit. It'll always result in fruit. And so guys, listen, we have, we have to ask ourselves the question. There's three questions I think we've got to ask. Number one, listen, have you been loosened from the law? Listen, if you're here today and you're not saved, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, do you understand that you're still bound to your old man? You're bound to your, your old sin nature. And until there's a death, you can't be separated and remarried to Christ. You have to come to Christ as Lord and Savior. I did that when I was 21 years old. Somebody shared the gospel with me. It was simplistic. My faith was simplistic, but I believe that Jesus Christ saved me from my sin three days after I turned 21. I just asked him to save me because I realized that the end of my sin was death. Listen, if you're here today and you don't know you're saved, you can know today. You can put your faith and trust in Christ today. The second question is this, how faithful are you in your marriage to Christ are you serving in the newness of the Spirit? Are you serving in newness of the Spirit? Are you seeing fruit 
abundant fruit, much fruit, fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of your lips? Are you seeing the fruit of the intimacy of your relationship with Christ? Or are you seeing the fruit of your backsliding against Him? And listen, if so, you can make that right today. You can make that right today. You don't have to have a fruitless relationship with your Lord and Savior. You can come and repent and ask God to forgive you. And and like David prayed, ask God to create a clean heart in you and own your junk and cry out to the Lord and, and just confess, Lord, I need you. I need you. Let's pray. Father, we love you.